Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and I'm joined as always by the man preparing for his law school finals, Luke Boggs. Luke, uh, are you ready for your month of hell coming up? Uh, I don't know if I'm ready for it, but I know I'm in it. So I I guess that I'm as ready as I'm going to be. I'm tying myself to the mast and praying. Yeah, I think I think it's ready for you. Um, but before, uh, you kind of get out of here and leave us for finals, we've got one more episode, um, with you on the show with us. And so for this week, we're going to check in on both the Republican races for governor, the primary that's been going on among the Republicans, the democratic race for governor between the two Stacey's. And we're going to look back and recap some of what went on during Sonny die, um, to kind of wrap up our coverage of this legislative session. Um, so Look, let's just kind of start with the Republicans. Um, the kind of the big newsy item for the Republicans was a recent forum held uh, at the very end of March. And all of the Republicans were there. Casey Cagle, Hunter Hill, Brian Kemp, uh, Michael Williams, the four that we've talked about uh, pretty extensively. Clay Tippins, who's been kind of a newcomer, he was also at that forum. And then two lesser known candidates, uh, Mark Erbach and Eddie Hayes also participated in this forum that uh, Bluestein at AJC hosted. Um, and for, you know, kind of the storylines that are coming out of that debate, they're really kind of in line with what the messaging has been from all of the Republicans so far. Uh, Brian Kemp is really drilling in on immigration. He has what he calls a track and deport plan where he, uh, you know, intends to come down pretty heavily on undocumented immigrants. Uh, Hunter Hill continues to talk about his desire to eliminate the state income tax. And uh, as a result, eliminate a lot of spending on social welfare, welfare programs like Medicaid Um, he, he wasn't super specific about what that actually meant, uh, but he kind of said that, you know, these are activities that should be done by the private sector, by nonprofits and in church organizations. Um, and that this is a responsibility that should not belong to government. And then, uh, Cagle was kind of the man with the target on his back from everybody, uh, because the legislative session just ended. And so everybody who had a complaint about how, uh, Casey Cagle was running the state Senate, during this last legislative session, they they aired all of their grievances, particularly Michael Williams aired all of his grievances during this recent forum. Um, so, Luke, what what are you kind of keeping your eye on uh, as it relates to the Republicans in this race as we head down the final stretch to the May 22nd primary? Well, I think I think what you said is important that Casey Cagle is the man with the target on the back of you know, on his back because we all expect Casey Cagle to probably come out of this thing victorious. And so the real question is who is going to face him in the primary? Because as you just mentioned, going down this list of candidates, two of which that I literally did not know were even in the race um, until this moment of this, uh, uh, our conversation, uh, it's going to be a runoff. There's just too, too many candidates to avoid that. And so, uh, with that in mind, the thing that I've been watching in this race from the beginning and have kind of not been shocked of, but just a little surprised since we've seen so many 
uh, elections all around the country is that the GOP candidates are all just like following the playbook that every other Republican seems to be playing right now. And it hasn't been working exceptionally well. You know, you, you mentioned several states, including Casey Cagle and Kemp, really focusing pretty hard on immigration issues. And that has been sort of the, you know, dog whistle that many Republicans have been relying on to try to uh, be Trumpian and to encourage Trump voters to uh, support them furiously. And it just has not worked. And I I don't think it's going to work in Georgia either. Uh, I mean, it didn't work in Virginia. It hasn't worked in Pennsylvania. I just don't think it's going to work here. And so I guess what I'm saying is I'm curious to see if that's going to change when it's a one-on-one situation and these candidates actually really focus on each other or if it's going to just be, you know, both other Republican candidates just kind of following the, the bland talking points. Yeah, I I think this is particularly interesting as it relates to Brian Kemp. Uh, I kind of get the impression that the the place, the second place uh, outcome, the the person who will probably make it to the runoff with Cagle is probably going to come down to a contest between Brian Kemp and Hunter Hill. And they are talking about pretty vastly different issues. Hunter Hill's emphasis is not as much on immigration as Brian Kemp's is. But but Brian Kemp at this forum, he really brought a lot of his answers back to immigration. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about Sine Die some, but, but it's interesting that, that not only did the immigration messaging not really work in Virginia or in that Pennsylvania special election, um, but immigration bills that were uh, really top ticket items and were, were high profile issues in the legislature this session failed at the end of the legislative session. And so for actual elected officials who were actually trying to govern in Georgia this year, uh, being you know, adopting more draconian immigration measures was not something that they prioritized in the final days of session. And so you know, I think it'll be interesting to see if some of these positions that Kemp is taking would haunt him in a general election, or if uh, Casey Cagle would potentially make the argument in a uh, final runoff between him and Brian Kemp about whether or not these positions make him electable, even though, you know, Casey Cagle has not shied away from, you know, lining himself up with uh, Donald Trump on the issue of immigration either and has uh, touted his lawsuit of a of a city in Georgia that he alleged was a sanctuary city or was adopting sanctuary practices you know at, at some point if the, once they get to that one-on-one final match if it's Cagle versus Hill and Cagle's looking for a way to differentiate himself from from or if it's Cagle versus Kemp and Cagle is looking to differentiate himself from Brian Kemp um, that may an issue may be an issue where he might look to moderate Republicans who are disaffected with Trump and say, uh, you know, hey, I'm more electable, I'm more serious, and um, that would be a positive direction that I I wouldn't exactly expect, but but you never know. Yeah, and I I kind of expect that's what's going to happen in this race is that no matter who makes it to the runoff with Casey Cagle, it's probably going to be them just following the same playbook the same talking points and you, you just did an admirable job of talking through them. The other thing that's kind of interesting about this race to me is like the, the sort of late ish entry of clay Tippins. Um, he's an outsider who 
has not run for office before. So he's probably he's he's touting that outsider label that was so effective for David Perdue when he ran for the Senate. But Clay Tippin seems out of his element anytime he is talking about anything that is not sex trafficking. And it, I don't know, I just I watched this forum and I couldn't get over, you know, I, I wondered if he had thought more about why he wants to run for governor beyond something that he wants to do about sex trafficking. Are you, do you, uh, is there anything about Clay Tippins that sticks out to you, Luke, or? I think it's, it's sort of just surprising how Clay Tippins is getting lost in the shuffle. Cause I mean, he has a lot of money, uh, of his own to spend and he spent a good bit of it from what I remember from the disclosures. And he hasn't really been using it well because I mean Georgia again has a record of like embracing these businessman candidates. I mean you know Trump did very well here, David Perdue did very well here, and so I just don't know why uh, why he is in, you know in that situation where he's just not doing as well because I, I've seen some of his ads and I mean they they were very well put together and you know did focus on sex trafficking but other issues as well. So it's kind of bizarre how he is just sort of honed in on this one thing that while it is a problem and it's great that a candidate is talking about it in this very serious way it's just sort of odd as a strategy I, I guess one thing that's interesting is the fundraising numbers also came out and Kegel has a pretty sizable lead I mean do you do you think that this is really a race that is kind of decided and Kegel has an upper hand not only to be the first place winner of the first round of the primary, but but has a pretty clear path through the runoff, or um, because he, because he has the backing of the capital crowd, uh, as the AJC's reported, he's already on air with a lot of TV ads. I think he's got an ad buy that's like four and a half million dollars, which is I think more than the rest of the entire field combined. Um, do you do you feel like that this is Kegel's race to win, or uh, you know how do you think this moment, you know the sort of anti-establishment moment, anti-establishment moment of Trumpian politics could like get in Kegel's way? I think it's weird that it hasn't gotten more in his way, but I think that also is a uh, effect of how many candidates are in the race and just the amount of support that he had around him to begin with, and. The real test of it will be, I think, the uh, the uh, the runoff, and depending on who gets uh, gets in there with him, I think it's not on conclusion um, because I mean, just whoever ends up in that runoff with him will have a, a much better chance to distinguish himself because right now there's just, there's just too many candidates and there's not enough. You know, it's it's not like the presidential primary where there's all this national attention. And there's several election days that you can build momentum off of and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And so in Georgia, unfortunately, it's it's been pretty low attention from everything I've seen uh, in the primaries and with, on both sides. And so it's it's difficult, as I, we're about to talk to, for the Stacys to distinguish themselves uh, between each other. And the records are pretty similar, I think the Republicans are having a similar problem. And I think the only chance anyone has to beat Kegel is on a one-on-one match. And that's probably uh, why all the other candidates have been beating up on him so much is to try to get into that number two spot and then have him weakened up by, you know, seven other candidates. So another thing that was kind of interesting, some of the bills that we saw in the legislature this session and, and some of the, 
the bills that didn't pass that were but were kind of intended to be messaging bills were bills that leaned towards the center tried to show Republicans as kind of a productive governing party. There was a, a hate crimes bill that I don't think really got anywhere. Um, but, but you know, the, the messaging that was trying to be sent uh, from Republicans in the legislature in a lot of instances was, you know, aside from the Kegel and NRA uh, blow up that happened was, Hey, you know, we're, we're a productive governing party. We've been doing a good job leading the state and, and let us keep the keys to the castle. Um, Greg Bluestein asked, what issue would each of these candidates work across the aisle with Democrats on? And I was kind of surprised. None of the candidates really bit on this. The the one that sort of kind of leaned into it a little bit was Michael Williams. He talked about how he goes to uh, Georgia Black Caucus events and Galeo events to try to understand the point of view of the other side. Uh, but Brian Kemp just flat out rejected the idea of working across the aisle, working with Democrats at all. He was pretty clear that he had no interest in it. And then uh, Casey Cagle uh, talked about how he he runs the Senate in a bipartisan way, uh, but pivoted immediately to the idea that, you know, I run the Senate based on conservative principles and conservative principles are the winning ones. And so, of course, Democrats agree with that. Um, do you think... Is, is this just uh, an issue in the primary of you got to rally the base and so bipartisanship would be a bad word here? Or um, or is there a real avenue for uh, these candidates to... I mean, is there an avenue that they're potentially passing up to say uh, that they could be productive in working with Democrats who, who may be on the ascendance in the legislature um, and maybe in this governor's race? I think I think what you said is probably true. They have to, you know, try rally the base. But the other thing is, too, most of the Republicans that I've talked to and just like see in the news and watch, I mean, they're in denial about how big of a Democratic wave is coming, and they really don't know how to like picture the post two thousand eighteen elections world. And so for them, I think it's a lot easier for them just to kind of fall back on what the legislature has been like since 2002, 2004, and just expect that, you know, Republicans will still be in charge. And at, at the end of the day, if it's not a major, major issue that the Democratic vote, while is nice to have and, you know, makes it look like you're, you're being bipartisan and the state's working together on big issues, which we've done a pretty good job of, of doing on several things. Uh, it's not necessary to any of the, uh, bills you want to get passed, and so uh, I think it's it's natural for them to kind of fall into this sort of you know regular talking point of we're going to you know do do what we want to do and pass our agenda and you know pass what we're advocating for, and those you know dirty dirty Democrats won't get in our way. So one other thing I'd like to hit on uh, for the Republicans before we take a look at the Stacys is um, Hunter Hill was sort of described by the. A political rewind panel on GPB is like having momentum coming out of this debate. I didn't actually really, I, I listened to political rewind before I watched this event. And so I, I didn't really see it out of Hunter Hill. I mean, he did seem to be on his usual message and, and was definitely, I think among the top three in terms of just like being competent about their answers and, and being compelling about the message that they were trying to send. But I do think that they're... But I know what your bias is. What's my bias? Your bias is you think his policy ideas are terrible and that they're absurd. And so because of that, 
you are viewing it that granted that's true that they don't work and they don't seem like they would work to people like you and i who study this too much but like for a lot of people like those goals that he set out sound really really good and if they would work out you would be very excited to have them well i don't that's an interesting thing luke because what you saw in the the pennsylvania special election in the final days was that they abandoned the congressional folks that were helping out the republican in that campaign they abandoned their messaging around tax cuts and they leaned into the messaging on immigration and um really hunter hill is on sort of the tax cut side and the like purest conservative side of the messaging here and so i i kind of wonder yeah i think some of these ideas are pretty terrible and i i think they're just plainly not workable based on the way he describes them he talks about the need to eliminate the state income tax which is i think just under half of the state's revenue right now double the state's investment in transportation and um center education around you know homeschooling and private school options and sort of non-government options which would push money out of the current K through 12 system and so he wants to do all of those things not raise taxes on in any other way except i mean there's going to be some sort of offsetting sales tax increase um, but he noted in this debate that the people who are like mischaracterizing his proposal are saying that, you know, we're going to eliminate the state income tax and move to a sales tax that's like 16%. And he said that that was, you know, absurd and that, you know, the numbers would work if you had a sales tax level that was like 10 or 11%. Um, but like, so th- there's a couple things. I, I just, I don't think that the numbers work out. I'd be interested to see them, but, but the way they're described and the way that everybody else describes the budget situation in Atlanta, it, it seems like two different realities to me. Um, but also you, the business community, I don't think is as behind this big elimination of the state income tax. Um, Casey Cagle earlier in the campaign told, called talk like that, basically pure political rhetoric and sort of the more, uh, establishment business friendly wing of the Republicans in Atlanta has rejected the idea of wholesale eliminating the state income tax to date. Um, and then combine that with, I don't know how compelling the messaging is to the primary electorate. Like what does it mean to be the true conservative now? Does it mean cutting taxes as far as it'll go? Or does it mean being really shitty to immigrants? Uh, like, I think that that's sort of an interesting, uh, debate that may play out and may determine who the number two is to get to that race. Um, but I just, I don't know. It like the, the political rewind panel thought he had momentum, thought he seemed competent and interesting and conservative. Um, but you know, I don't know if that issue is, is what's on top of everybody's minds right now. I would also say that out of the candidates that are up there, Hunter Hill makes the most sense to me of being the number two, just because Brian Kemp would naturally fall in that position. But due to a horrible secretary of state, he's been and the fact that he's like lost all of our data multiple times due to just blatant incompetence. And on, you know, combine that with the fact that he, much of his political rhetoric is, is pretty incendiary and not in, the sort of like populist way that like Trump is, but like 
Brian Kemp just, like, really doesn't like Democrats as people. And, like, Trump doesn't even get into that too often. He does it sometimes, but, like, not all the time. Whereas, like, Brian Kemp is just, like, really about blatantly fighting Democrats. Like, that seems to be what his role in elected office, that's what he seemed to believe that was his number one job. And combine that with the scandals that he's had, you know, that it's pretty obvious that 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 really hurt him with a lot of voters and hurt his chances. And then, I mean, looking at the other performing in the way and don't have records in the way that Hill and Cagle do. And so on, on that front, it's not surprising to me that that's who the political rewind folks are focusing on. And we haven't really talked much about Michael Williams, but I kind of get the sense he feels like he's fading from this conversation a little bit, not necessarily because he wasn't participating in the debate. He was and, you know, had the same old things about how Casey Cagle just like utterly ruined his entire experience at the legislature. Um, But he only raised like $4,000 in the last reporting period. I guess he was in the legislature, so he couldn't raise money, but I don't. You know, I don't see him like. I mean that that is a big that's a big deal. Like we we need to be fair. Like four thousand is pretty low, even for like the little bit of time he had to raise money um, between the reporting deadline and getting out of session. But I mean, it's you you can't raise money during session, so it's not it's not like that's it, that number is really low, but it's not as embarrassing as it sounds. Uh, well, let's let's dig in on the Democrats here. Um, so, for the Democrats, the the fault line still remains between the two Stacys. Their big disagreement over the Hope Scholarship. They also had a forum. Theirs was, I, f- I believe, earlier this week or or maybe the end of last week. Um, and the big uh, point of interest to come out of that was a little bit more detail about this disagreement on what happened with the Hope Scholarship. And I think it's kind of coming into view that without putting words in her mouth, I think Stacey Evans seems to be more advocating that Stacey Abrams as the House Minority Leader should have said no to the Republicans in their efforts to cut hope amidst the Great Recession in uh, 2010 and 2011, that she should have said no to this wholesale had everybody vote against it and then taken the issue to the campaign trail to try to build political support for the hope program and um, do it kind of with an outside game and try to put political pressure through elections on Republicans, as opposed to, you know, what's been discussed pretty extensively of the inside game where Abrams and she made this defense again in this forum. And, and we'll link to both of these so that you guys can watch them in full if you want Uh the Republican one was not much of a barn burner, but uh, the Democratic one was interesting. Um, Abrams sort of continued to make this case that, you know, I got the best that I could. And she listed a whole host of other bad things that Republicans did that she felt like if she had said no and had her caucus just refused to work with the Republicans, that it would have been a much worse outcome for the HOPE program. She talked about how, um, you know, Republicans tried to allow nine votes, uh, I guess this is among the Supreme Court, allow nine votes to put somebody to death as opposed to 12, because that would have been too many. She talked about other things that uh, were pretty negative that Republicans did. And so I don't, has your thinking on this changed at all, Luke, in terms of 
where, you know, how, how we kind of score this debate between Stacey Evans and Stacey Abrams over this hope issue or, or is looking back at this even all that valuable? I think that that is like the core question. Like how much does this matter? And I, I honestly think it matters a great deal and not because of the particular fight like this particular moment in time this particular fight they had over hope does not matter in a a deep way in like the long term run when you're thinking about this race obviously it heavily affected uh my ability to pay for school it does matter but what i mean when thinking about this race is that this is a window into how they want to be governor and a window to how they will fight as governor and what and it's kind of surprising considering like the policy positions that they've taken and who supports which candidate because as we've mentioned before you know the and I've uh it's been sort of confusion over that many of the you know more like white progressive crowd the like Bernie crap people are all over Abrams and they love her but she is the candidate that sort of like buckled under pressure wearing like a situation of like the Bernie like stand for your values and never give up kind of thing. Like Evans is the one who actually followed that point of view. And so what this is telling you is that if Evans faced a Republican legislature and she disagreed with them on a major policy issue, then she would probably not compromise and she wouldn't sign the legislation and she would veto it. And if it was something so incredibly major that like the state couldn't function on it. Her policy would be, well, like we'll work it out in the election. And, you know, if the Republicans won't go along with me, then, you know, let's elect some Democrats that will. That's, that's sort of what I'm reading into this. And it tells you on the Abrams side that her policy will be that to work with the Republicans and to find a way to make a compromise that, you know, many Democrats might not like, but Republicans and Democrats both will have to swallow some stuff they don't like. That's that's what I'm reading out of this. And I think that's where we should focus on uh, with this debate, because I think that's what's at the heart of it, rather than, you know, this particular bill at this particular moment. That's the big picture. Yeah, I think the lesson that I like kind of look to pull out of this, the question that I uh, if I had another chance to talk with them, I would love to ask, particularly Stacey Evans, is how far does this opposition to policies that violate your principles go? Would she be willing to not only veto the bill, because presumably, you know, um, you know, she's going to disagree with a probably Republican-led legislature about a lot of things, but would she go even further than vetoing a single bill if particularly if Republicans could override a veto and uh, threaten to uh, shut down the Georgia government by refusing to sign the budget and saying, you know, I refuse to move this government forward at all because of, uh, you know, whatever policy it is like, like if, like if a governor Evans, if, if Evans was governor in 2011 and she was presented this bill as the outcome that the legislature agreed to, would she not only veto the bill, which seemed to be, you know, that couldn't be the end of the conversation at the time because the program seemed to not have the money uh, to keep functioning without these changes. At least that's what everybody involved seemed to say. But would she, you know, shut down state government over this issue and say, I refuse to accept, 
you know, changes to this program that she has described as hurtful and, and would have completely destroyed her path uh, to college and through college that she benefited from significantly when she was, you know, a young person. Um, yeah, I'm curious to know how far that goes because she she doesn't strike me in some other uh, instances as being this progressive that is unwilling to agree with more conservative ideas and unwilling to bend to them. Um, she said that she is, she has no plans to raise any taxes at all. She said that in a interview with Dennis O'Hare and, and she told us that she was not interested yet in committing to reversing the tax cuts that were passed this year. And then, you know, this is a relatively small issue, but, uh, she did not immediately commit to opposing work requirements in the Medicaid program, which is, you know, I know a small healthcare issue that I really care about. Uh, but, you know, when I asked Abrams that question, she immediately said no to work requirements. And she talked about, uh, you know, how important this program was to people that progressives often claim to be aiming to represent. And Evans didn't take a position either way when I asked her. So, I, you know, it's not as if she is the more progressive candidate on every issue across the board and is unwilling to bend to uh, what is probably going to be the will of a more conservative legislature. She's mixed in the same way that Abrams is mixed. Um, and so I'm curious to know how far this opposition would go. From what I read of this, it's, it's sort of the day-to-day deal-making. They both probably would approach it with a very similar mindset. It's just the differences on these big critical issues that, you know, define what a government stands for, how they will approach them. And I I don't think we can underestimate just how influential a governor will be because, you know, to be honest, like if we have a Democratic governor in Georgia, then the margin between Republicans and Democrats in the state House and state Senate is probably significantly shrunk uh, in that you know in that scenario if that's the world we're living in so i don't think there'll be too many of these like showdown scenarios where you know the democrat governor just cannot get anything resembling what what they want from the legislature because like that's going to be the of any negotiation on most of these bills are you know will the democrat governor actually sign this or not because the Republicans, again, definitely under that scenario, will not have a supermajority. I mean, they don't have one now in the House or the Senate, I believe. So if we have elected a Democrat governor, it's very unlikely that we've also somehow got a supermajority of Republicans. So, I mean, if they want to get anything passed, they're going to have to work with Democrats. And so I don't, I don't see that happening all that often. But I think it does say a lot about what the priorities of the two candidates are. So the other thing that was interesting to come out of this forum was for the first time, uh, Stacey Evans made a connection between Abrams position in the hope negotiations and a report that came out that said that Stacey Abrams had a, she was a part of a, a startup nonprofit company that had a contract with the state. Uh, but this was a this was a federal program. It came out of a, a law passed uh, in the wake of the Great Recession in Congress in Washington um, that it basically sent some money to the states to facilitate getting credit 
to small businesses and kind of, I think this is part of broadly, I think this is part of trying to like keep credit markets loosened up when they, when they froze up during the great recession. Um, these are finance issues that I don't know super well, but I, that's kind of what I infer. And so Stacey Abrams had, uh, a company that participated in this program administered by the state department of community affairs, where they got grant money to help uh, small businesses. And for the first time, Evans connected Abrams work with Republicans to gut the hope scholarship program with the fact that she had what Abrams uh, characterizes as a business relationship with the governor's office. Um, and she said in this debate that, you know, she had racked her brain for, for a really long time as to why Abrams would compromise on these issues that in, in the hope negotiations that she thought were, you know, kind of no brainers for Democrats and progressives. And, and now she thinks she's kind of found her answer in that Abrams had this company that had a business relationship with the governor's office, um, and it required some sort of Republican okay to be going on, and that that was the cause of her caving. Um, it's interesting because she levied this allegation really without any evidence to support it. It's the kind of thing that, like, you know, maybe could be true, maybe could not be true. Um, Kyle, Kyle, you know what this is? This is the historical Lyndon B. Johnson make them deny it strategy. Oh, yeah. That is what it sounds like. In that if you're explaining you're losing, if you have to to deny an allegation like this, then you're losing. Well, uh, that's kind of the question that sticks out to me is, is is that something that is a good thing for Democratic candidates to be doing? We've talked about, we've talked at length for the last 10 minutes about their differing positions on this issue. And both of them have been very clear about where they stand in relation to this hope issue. Now, sort of later on in this discussion, Evans is kind of throwing in this new element uh, without a lot of evidence that Abrams nonprofit made her unable to avoid caving to Republicans without a lot of evidence to support her claim. I mean, is that really a good place for these candidates to be having this discussion in this primary? I think regardless of the answer to that question it is undeniable that whoever comes out of the republican runoff will make these allegations worse and if abrams does not have a good answer to them then that is going to severely threaten her candidacy so while it might not be the best thing for democratic candidates to go against each other and make these sort of allegations it is assured that the Republicans will be doing it. And this is giving Abrams an opportunity to come up with hopefully the, you know, correct and thorough answer to this problem so that this does not become like her version of the emails, you know, because my, and my concern is, is that this is, you know, now the second nonprofit associated with Abrams that has had controversies and AJC articles written about them. And I, I would appreciate as a voter of the Democratic primary, uh, additional clarity on like what is going on in all these things and clear answers about why this is the first time I've, I've heard about this nonprofit. Because it's one of those things that is just like, transparency is always the best disinfectant and it always helps to know more things. And if you're going to have businesses that 
uh, or nonprofits that have relationships with the state, then like that's fine. You just have to like be very transparent about it. And you know, and again, we're we're finding out about it two two months before the primary election is the first time that I read about this nonprofit. So you know. I, I, I would I would appreciate explanations and so if there is an explanation then it won't be hard for Abrams to answer the accusation. Well, her answer um that she gave in this uh debate between the two was basically that she was up front with the state, with the state's attorney general about uh whether or not her participation in this program would be allowed because she was both minority leader and uh, a person, I think she her position was like vice president of this, um, you know, this entity um, at the time. And and Georgia law says that you know you can't own a uh, a greater than twenty five percent share of the stake of a business um, that is doing business with the state while you are also an elected official. And the reporting from the AJC says that she only had a 16% share. So she was under the legal limit on this. And she says that the legal opinion that she got from the attorney general, which Evans characterizes it as permission from Republicans to do this, um, that the legal opinion she got seems to have been about being under that 25% threshold. And so she said, you know, she was under the 25% threshold. And then, um, you know, her role in this was, you know, using her legal background to give legal advice. And um, so that was all that she did, but she did not interface with the state at all. She didn't do anything with this grant program. Specifically, she was just a part of this organization. I don't know if that, you know, is all that compelling to people. Um you know, it, it, it is interesting that she's going to need to get a compelling answer before November. <laughs> that, that's, that's my point. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you can sort of say, like you can walk through the details of that and it's like probably fine. I don't know. Or if it is, or it's not, but I think that people who are predisposed not to like her are going to see that as evidence of like corruption or, or playing the system in a way that it shouldn't be played. Um, you know, kind of in the way that people viewed Hillary Clinton in the emails and people who like her are going to say, no, that's not that big of a deal. Um, I, I think it's just more reflective of people's pre-existing feelings on her than it is this really like significant substantive issue without without any evidence that her participation in this actually impacted decision making in any way. The one, the one other thing I note on that is, to me, I read that and I was like, this actually just means we need to pay our members more, um, because Stacey Evans has a lot. Stacey Abrams has a lot of things going on outside of her job as minority leader, and all power to her for for taking on whatever projects and outside stuff that she wants to do, um, but. You know, members of the legislature are also in this position that they have to do outside business. Uh, they have to have outside employment to make enough money to, uh, you know, feed their families and, and live. And I would much prefer a legislature where uh, being a member was a full-time job and you paid these people enough money to live on so that they did not need to engage in all kinds of outside uh, business arrangements just to earn a, a you know, a regular income 
And I, I think that this is, you know, without any taking any position on whether or not her actions with this company were good or bad, um, I think it's indicative of the need to pay members more and to expect that, you know, for the most part, their full-time job, if they are a member, is to be a member of the legislature, to interact with their constituents, and to solve policy problems. Not just because, you know, these things are difficult to explain and they may or may not be bad, but like, you know... People who are in the legislature should be spending their time solving the problems facing the state. And so we should, you know, in my opinion, we should pay them the money that allows them to to take that on as a full-time job and uh, to put their full effort into that position. That is a conversation for another time because yeah. I have lots of thoughts. The The one other thing that's kind of stood out to me about the Democratic race is both of the Stacys have given interviews with Dennis O'Hare uh, recently where they've both been a little bit dodgy about specifics on their choices when it comes to things like eliminating tax loopholes or uh, saying what they would do about uh, the tax code to fund the priorities that they, that they both say that they have uh, specifically Stacey Abrams told Dennis O'Hare that she would not name a specific tax break that she would eliminate. Um, a lot of her policy proposals that she's put out, they have a list of things that she wants to do, and then they have a cost estimate for them. And then they have a little section where uh, she talks about where she'll get the revenue to do that. And she's had a few really specific things uh, that I think are uh, you know, relatively good policy, eliminating the student scholarship organization program, which is uh, got more money in this year's legislature, but doesn't have a lot of oversight. And it's not clear that it really is the best use of funds. Um, but a lot of her other proposals will say, we're going to do a review of all the tax breaks that the state gives to, um, you know, promote economic development, or, you know, facilitate the growth of specific industries or, or specific companies. Um, but she never really gets specific about which ones of those she would get rid of. The film tax credit is one that people love and, and people think broadly has a really positive economic impact on the state, but there's, you know, hundreds of other ones that are that are up for review. Stacey Evans was pressed by Dennis O'Hare on how much her proposals would cost. She kind of laid she's laid out consistently her support for a lot of different, you know, progressive issues. Um, and with the exception of talking about achieving tuition-free technical college through the HOPE program, which is basically returning HOPE to covering tuition-free technical college in a way that it did before the HOPE cuts, she says that this would cost $20 million and that that money is there in the HOPE scholarship lottery money already. Um, she wouldn't really give a cost estimate for any of the other things that she wanted to do, any of the big transportation items that she has on her agenda, or uh, or her desire to take a look and reform the education funding formula and add some money into that. Do you think that it's problematic at all that that both of these candidates are kind of not, not only are they not being really straightforward on this, but they actually, it was interesting that they both, when pressed by Dennis O'Hare, were just like, no, I can't tell you that. Yeah, I think that is a little concerning because besides the big ones like the film tax credit and the student scholarship organization tax credit and the uh, previous electric vehicle tax credit, besides those really big ticket ones, 
I know we're just like littered with tax credits all the time and some of them have sunsets other ones don't and the chairman of the ways and means committee on the house side has been pretty adamant about trying to like get control of all these tax breaks because we're not really sure how effective they are or if they're helping at all and and what like priorities they are really advancing so on that front i agree with the sentiment that we should do a pretty hard review of our uh, tax credits in Georgia and figure out like what they're doing and figuring out how effective they are being and which ones we should keep and which ones we should get rid of and which ones we should debate over. But the fact that both of these candidates who are on policy, I mean, uh, on most days, even if you disagree with the policy that they want to promote, like you, they, they do their homework. It's kind of weird that neither one of them had like at least one tax break that they could like scream about because to my recollection, didn't we not pass the yacht tax, the yacht uh, uh, repair tax break? I thought we did pass that, but I can't remember. I can't remember. But if we did pass it, that's the one they should go after. But if uh, if not, then, you know, I feel like there's another one out there that they could have demonized. And um, The one other thing that I find a little bit frustrating, and I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of political polling that could tell me that I'm wrong, is... In, in, both candidates are kind of asserting that you can shift around money in the budget and cut loopholes and not do any significant changes to the tax code beyond some of this shifting and loophole filling to fund all of the priorities that they're laying out. And and so, I, you know, I don't actually think that that's true. I, you know, maybe there will be a more sort of detailed layout of of funding and you know, particularly if one of these Stacey's was to ultimately become the next governor, they would have to make good on these promises that they've made. Um, but they're laying out a lot of promises, a lot of ideas, and basically saying that we can do all these things and it's not really going to cost us anything because we already have the money, we're just spending it the wrong way. There's a lot of really big, challenging policy proposals and and big problems in Georgia that I think, you know, at the bare minimum, they're a lot of them are just about the way in which we've underfunded things for a long time. And at some point, I think Democrats have to try to make a positive argument about raising revenue. I know, you know, I particularly blasted the Democrats that voted against these big tax cuts and, and, you know, how they had uh, talked about these big progressive things that they want to see government do, but they can't say no to a tax cut. I, I think that that's a big issue for the party um, because you really could have, you know, outside political forces that push Democrats into power. But if Democrats aren't willing to talk about revenue in a way that they feel comfortable with, if they're not willing to say that corporations in this state should pay a little bit more money, or that we could do something like increase the cigarette tax, which is one of the lowest taxes in the country, uh, one of the lowest tax rates on cigarettes in the country in our state, I just don't see how you can actually achieve the big progressive goals that some of these candidates have in mind. And, and, and I think that that sets you up to have a disappointing tenure as governor. Um, this is a problem that goes way back to the Zell Miller days where the whole reason that the lottery is what funded the hope scholarship is because, you know, conservatives have, have run this state for a long time and they don't think that we need to raise revenue for like anything, but, but, the sort of level of our taxes is kind of an overall 
um, measure has decreased since the early 90s when Zell Miller was governor. And if we're going to address the big challenges that the state faces, we're going to have to find revenue to pay for these things. And we're going to have to convince people that finding that revenue is a good thing. It's the right thing to do. And finding that revenue probably means asking the wealthy to pay more. Um, it doesn't mean putting more of a tax burden on, you know, the people that are struggling to get by. And so I just, I'm a little frustrated with where that conversation is right now, because with the exception of Abrams, who said that she would reverse the tax cuts that were passed by Republicans, um, during this legislative session, the ones that a bunch of Democrats voted for, uh, both of them have been skittish about being interested in finding any new revenue at all. I think your complaint is valid, but it is a little bit of putting the cart before the horse because both of these candidates need to do a very good job of actually convincing the people of Georgia that the policy goals that they want to advance are a good idea to begin with. And I don't think either one of them have done that yet or it, that anyone could have at this point in a campaign and, you know, before you're advocating for yeah, let's raise taxes on all these folks. Like, go out there and actually convince people what you want to do and then have the conversation of we need to raise money to actually do it. Because at this point, I couldn't tell you what either one of the candidates would do if we increased our revenue besides fully fund QBE and put more money in the Hope Scholarship. And that's that's not a good thing. Yeah, I mean they have. I mean they've they've talked about other ideas. I, I think you're right that this this race just isn't on the radar yet in a way that that a Democrat could make this argument. I mean, I guess it's going to be something that that the Democrat maybe will have to make during the general election. Although, um, you know, if they're not willing to say it now, are they going to be willing to say it when they've got a Republican next to them on the stage, being like, "Yeah, here's another tax and spend liberal." Um, yeah, I. I, I do think that they haven't had the opportunity to make the case yet, but, but I do think that these things have to kind of go hand in hand. Um, or, or you just can't insinuate that we can do all these things and it'll be free because it's not going to be free. And I think that, you know, eventually you're going to have to say either we're going to do these things and it's going to cost money or we can't do these things. Um, and I don't, I just don't think you can make that as like when you're like, in your second year as governor or something. Um, you know, you have to build a coalition that wants these things early on. It has to be part of the reason that you were elected. Um, and we talk about this all the time. This is part of our big complaint about Republican leadership in this state is that all of these priorities in healthcare and education and transportation that have been underfunded, um, they are underfunded because Republicans prioritize tax cuts for wealthy people over solving these problems that primarily harm lower and middle income people when they're not addressed. Um, and so that's, you know, where I think the full throated case has to be made. And if you're not making the full throated case, you're not going to create the political capital you need to get these things done. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll move on to just kind of a quick closing on uh, the legislative session um, we're going to dive into some of the specifics on these things later because they were actually, it was a surprisingly productive session towards the end. Um, and a lot of sort of the big challenges that the state faces, the, the beginnings of addressing those things were kind of gotten, uh, were accomplished in this legislative session. Um, and so Luke, is there anything 
that caught your eye towards the end of session that was like kind of the story of session or, or your takeaway? It's, it's not something that happened just at the end, but I think the, the ATL is a pretty big accomplishment of this legislature. And it's something that I am kind of shocked by because of the fact that we did expand transportation in Georgia pretty significantly. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. We did expand transportation funding in Georgia pretty significantly just a couple of years ago. And so I was pretty much under the impression that it was like, well, that was our buy at the Apple and we missed it. And so probably won't be seeing any significant transit funding in Georgia anytime soon. And the fact that the state did this, um, I, I'm pretty happy with. And I think it also sort of set the tone on how a lot of other things went this session because... When, when we started out this session, I had two, like, big thoughts that the legislature could go down, like, two broad strategies. They could either go, like, let's throw as much red meat as possible at the base and try to pass all these, like, super conservative bills that will excite everyone and get everyone fired up for the elections, which is usually what they do. Or that they would be significantly more cautious and try to not do anything too crazy and knock out a couple like middle of the road accomplishments that like everyone could campaign on and sort of be like a more incumbent friendly um, session. And it kind of seems, it kind of seems that's the, the route they went down. Cause I mean, the ATL having significant transit expansion, both in funding and in scope in Metro Atlanta is pretty huge. Uh, you know, they did, uh, they expanded medical marijuana uh, to cover PTSD. They, and just, you know, they worked on a couple other just like smaller, but still like pretty universally popular, I imagine, issues. And that, that seems to be the story of Session to me is that they, they wanted to uh, operate in like as little risk as possible of, of blowback. Well, the other thing that they did, uh, and this was kind of a surprise at the end of session, was the governor changed the revenue estimate that basically helped grow the budget a little bit. And he changed it enough to close the funding gap on the QBE funding formula. So in Governor Deal's final year in office, the education funding formula is going to be fully funded for the first time, I think, since the Barnes administration, although I've seen a couple different descriptions of this one is like the first time in like 30 years and one is the first time uh, since Barnes um, and so this is interesting it, it's good policy Jason Carter who ran against Governor Deal in his reelect um, commended Governor Deal for making this move and it is good it you know in addition to fully funding QBE there was also a little bit more money for school buses which is a expense that the state has passed on to local governments and and kids are apparently riding in school buses that are probably too old and should not be on the road. Um, So those were good things in a policy direction. I think that they're a good start. Um, But in terms of the politics, it also takes a big weapon away from Democrats who have uh, consistently said that consistently uh, griped about Republicans not fully funding 
education. And and now Democrat and now Republicans on the campaign trail can say, you know, we've kind of made our climb back from the Great Recession by the end of the deal term. Uh, we were able to fully fund education and, and the budget is on a steady path going forward. Um, Luke, what do you think of the politics of that? And I mean, it, is it really significant in taking a weapon away from Democrats or, or do they have other things to point to that are, are now just going to take the place of this QBE point? I hope it will be a wake up call to Democrats that they need to have a campaign for governor of the state of Georgia that is more complicated than just that one issue because as we've both griped uh, several times on this show, education is a very important issue. It's critical. However, it is not the only argument that Democrats have. And typically, I think most voters think that Democrats are better on education. Like, I think that's just a universally accepted thing that you could go to Alaska or Hawaii or Montana or Oklahoma and you ask, which party is better on education? Almost everyone would be like, yeah, Democrats are. So everyone expects us to try to fund schools and you know, have raises for teachers and give them more money in general. That cannot be the heart of the Democratic Party of Georgia or a candidate's race for Georgia and governor. And so if you are a gubernatorial candidate and you look at the Republicans fully funding QBE, and you're like, shit, what's my campaign now? I'm, I mean, you're like, you're not doing your job as a candidate right, and the party's not doing its job trying to have a full scope narrative and attack them on the things that they think they're better at us, uh, better than us on. That's what you have to do. And, you know, that's, that's sort of my, my takeaway from them doing this is that it, if it is something that is so huge that we have no idea how to respond to it, that that's unacceptable. And we need to like step up our game and start attacking them on the economy and start attacking them on the things that they think that they're better at because they're not. Um, the other way in which uh, Nathan Deal was probably one of the more progressive governors in the country was he he finished his last chapter of criminal justice reform. And part of what came out of this was reforms to the bail system. Um, you know, bail is when you're arrested and you're waiting to go to trial, you can often pay your bail so that you're not held in prison for the entire time while you're waiting for trial. Um, and for a lot of people, they don't actually have the money to pay their bail, but they have uh, enough money to pay a bail bondsman to cover their bail for them. And typically how this works is if you have a $10,000 bail, um, the you would pay the bail bondsman 10% of that. And the bail bondsman would cover your bail, allowing you to get out of jail until you go to trial. And uh, then if you don't show up, uh, you know, they would come after you to, you know, basically get that that bail back. Um, this was an issue that the city of Atlanta addressed uh, because there was this issue of uh, people who were poor who um, were arrested on things like being drunk in public or, or urinating in public or, or crimes that are really a symptom of poverty and, and something that is not a good thing that we allow to happen. But part of what was happening was that these people were arrested. They're low income people who couldn't afford to pay their bail. And so they were stuck in jail for weeks or months while they awaited trial for relatively minor things. Governor Deal gave more flexibility to local jurisdictions to 
address this bail issue. He didn't really, this doesn't really make a lot of concrete changes on its own, but it sort of opens up flexibility for local jurisdictions that want to be a little easier on this and, and want to avoid the expense of keeping these people in jail when they probably don't need to be. Um, and so this was actually, I don't know if you remember this, Luke, but early in the session, there was a sheriff in Georgia who compared uh, Nathan Deal to Lucifer. <laughs> and this was the issue that he was, that the sheriff was upset about. And it turned into this really stinging rebuke from leading Republicans in the legislature against the sheriff. And then Republicans ultimately rallied around uh, this final chapter of this criminal justice measure. Um, and, and this is sort of the, the final feather in the hat for a big legacy item for the governor. Um, the other big thing that is, it's on the governor's plate. You know, all, all, all these bills have passed, but the governor hasn't signed most of them yet. He signed the budget. He signed the tax cuts. Um, he, he signed a couple of bills that were high priorities for him, but a lot of these haven't been signed by him yet. So they aren't quite inked into law. Most of them we think are probably going to end up getting signed by him. But one that we're not really sure about is uh, the creation of a new city called Eagles Landing um, south of Atlanta. Basically, there's been a movement locally to uh, annex part of the city of Stockbridge and create a new city of Eagles Landing. And and this has really been kind of an ongoing discussion among a lot of local areas. And I'll just be honest, I don't know a ton about these annexation issues, um, it's something that we should definitely look into more. But the argument about a lot of this is a lot of these local governments are governments with African-American leadership and primarily wealthier or primarily wider areas of these local governments have sought to carve themselves out of the local government because they claim to have complaints about public services that are provided, trash pickup, police and firefighter response times, some of the little nuts and bolts of local government. But the people who critique these annexation issues, um, they are critical of the people who want to pull their little corner of town out of a bigger city um, on on racial grounds, on saying that people in uh, these more wealthy parts of town, they don't want African-American political leaders to be spending their tax dollars. They don't want... Um, these these tax dollars to be mismanaged is kind of a, a unfair, uh, not substantiated by evidence trope about corruption in African American led governments and 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 this has been a dividing line in a lot of communities in and around the metro area, um, and so it's it's something that kind of flew under the radar, um, but it it caught a lot of opposition from the local legislative delegation from the Stockbridge area. And there are a lot of calls for Governor Deal to veto this measure. Um, but it's sort of like, you know, if you take the critics at their uh, most serious claims, it's almost like a modern day redlining issue where, uh, you know, wider, wealthier communities seek to seclude themselves and not uh, share their wealth in public services with African-American communities and African-American leaders. So, um, you know, that that's an issue that uh, is probably something worth keeping an eye on, particularly if this gets vetoed. Um, I think the last thing worth mentioning is there was a lot of discussion around the Hidden Predator Act. We, we talked about it here. 
and that bill ultimately failed. Um, there were still attempts in the final hours to weaken the provisions in that bill uh, from lobbyists for the Georgia Chamber and the Boy Scouts and uh, you know the the Catholics. Um, and so I, I don't. I'm I'm frustrated by by where that ended up. I I don't see any reason for uh, people who were sexually abused as children to not have a way later in life to come get a remedy for that. Maybe holding these organizations accountable is something that needs to be discussed a little more, but trying to limit liability for them at all, or for them to take the children that they're currently serving now, the way the Boy Scouts are doing and saying that if we have to pay out money to old victims of sexual assault, that it's going to limit services or protections for children that exist now and pitting one group of children against another group of people who were children when they were served by these entities. Um, I think that that's pretty disgraceful. And, and I hope that, you know, for the most part, cooler heads can prevail and, and a more concrete and better solution for people who were, for people who were sexually abused as children, people who were molested as children, that politics and uh, these organizations covering their own asses um, doesn't get in the way of justice for these kids. You know, if, if we don't get this right the next time around, I, I think it's going to be pretty disgraceful. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, if anything will convince these organizations to crack down on this issue, it is forcing them to pay out for their past failures. And so I, I am pretty convinced that the Boy Scouts of America or the Boy Scouts of Georgia are not going to go bankrupt over, over this. All right. Well, with that, I think we're going to leave that there for now. Um, so Luke, best of luck on finals. I know you're going to check out for a little bit. Um, but my voice will be with while you you're gone, we're... all of my interviews are coming out. That's true. Uh, so part of what we're going to do is we're going to take a deep dive into Athens politics um, because the May 22nd primaries for statewide elections are also the general election for uh, local elections in Athens. And so Luke's had some conversations with some candidates and I've got some on deck. Um, so you'll hear those during the next few weeks. Um, and then after that, we're going to be in the heat of campaign season. Um, and so that is going to be exciting as always. It's, this is our second election cycle on the show, Luke. Yeah, we, we just can't get enough of those elections. I'm, I'm very excited about it and, uh, excited to be out of finals so I can, you know, uh, run some internships during the summer and give a little more time to you guys and cover the, uh, campaigns a little bit, uh, more in depth than I've been able to while surviving my one L year. Well, congrats for making it through and uh, lots of exciting things. Well, I'm, to not, look I'm not there to yet. <laughs> don't, don't jinx it. I still <laughs> That's have a true. I, I knocked on some wood for you. Um, but with that, we're going to let y'all yeah, get out of here you. for the week. And, well, uh, actually, I have one more thing I wanted to, to oh. mention, which was an amazing thing happened today. And that is that Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress for several hours. And just as a random note on that, Rewatching the social network, knowing that that character uh, is responsible for so much insanity regarding the 2016 election, really put a new context on that film as I was rewatching it lately. And uh, I just just want to note that for uh, anyone who wanted to really get creeped out by a movie like size and context and history has really changed since it was created. So I just found that fascinating. 
Yeah, maybe we'll have more on that. There's there's all all kinds of stories that happen in DC that uh, unfortunately we don't get a lot of time to cover. But the whole Facebook thing that's going down is pretty interesting. So it might be a good uh, good uh, law school finals discussion uh, for the show. Um, but with that, we will let y'all get out of here, uh, and so we will talk to y'all next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.